time last year, almost to the day, I was in St. Andrew's Church, Kowloon, in Hong Kong. And I was listening there to a man share the story of how he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior and friend and Lord. And that man said something very striking. He said of the Lord Jesus, Today, I can tell you, he is more real to me than anybody in this room. What an amazing thing to be able to say of the Lord Jesus. And just as you hear that this morning, I I, I expect like me when I heard that you're applying that to yourself. The Lord Jesus as real to you or more real to you than anybody in the room. It's an important thing to think about. It's an important question to ask ourselves because Acts 5 reminds us that it's perfectly possible to be in the gathering of the church but for the Lord Jesus not to be very real to us on a personal level. Acts 5 begins in the section that wasn't read with the story of Ananias and Sapphira, a classic, terrifying story about a couple who belonged to the church and who were part of everything and involved in everything, even involved in giving resources to help the spread of the gospel. But what became evident was that the Lord Jesus was not real to them. They tried to lie to the Holy Spirit, and when challenged about that, they lied again. And they both dropped dead, and respectively then, within hours of each other, were taken to their place of burial. And the impact on the church must have been absolutely stunning. A couple who it was discovered were in every way like the rest of us, who seemed to be as earnest as everybody else, but obviously something was going on inside that meant Jesus was not real to them. And Acts 5 serves as a constant reminder to us, doesn't it, of the dangers of that. But then it goes on, and this is a section I really want us to focus on today, to show us the wonder of what happens when in the lives of the local church the Lord Jesus is gloriously real. And as we think about this today, I want to notice with you simply two things. Number one, an answer to an earlier prayer, and then later an answer to an earthly power. So let's think about this, first of all, an answer to an earlier prayer. If you have your Bibles, and I trust you do, because if you don't bunch up next to someone who does, because it's so important we see this, back in chapter 4, verse 29, we see that original prayer. The the, the church were under pressure. Um, The apostles had just made the wonderful declaration in verse 12 of chapter 4. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. They'd been involved in the healing of a man. They'd been lifted uh, and and, uh, persecuted and thrown in prison and then released. And they went and met with the local church. And as part of that, verse 29, Now, Lord, they're praying and they say together, the whole church family, Now, Lord, consider their threats. That's the background to these chapters. Threats against the gospel work. Threats against the church. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This was the prayer of the whole church for the whole church. They weren't just praying for the evangelists among them, for the apostles, for the pastors, for the leaders. They were praying it for everybody. You notice that from verse 23 of chapter 4. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. What a beautiful description of the local church. 
They went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they, that is their own people, the whole church family heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Here was a church family united in support of the leaders who were just fresh out of jail, but also united in their determination that all of them would have the boldness that the leaders had. Asking God to give them all the same level of boldness to declare the gospel. And look at the specific answer that came. Chapter 5, verse 15. As a result, people brought those who were ill into the streets and laid them on mats so that at least Peter's shadow could fall on them as he passed. Crowds gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing those who were ill, tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. And the key verse, obviously, the summary, verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. Now, my question this morning is this. Why do you think the church asked in chapter 4, verse 30, that the Lord would do this? So we're now seeing the answer to an earlier prayer, but let's dig behind it. Why did they ask for this to happen? Why did they ask that God would stretch out his hand to do amazing things in the name of the risen Lord Jesus? Well, it couldn't be clearer in the text. The church was asking for God to do this their request was with a view to bold, clear articulation of the gospel. They asked, the whole church family gathered together, Lord, continue, help us that we would continue, verse 29 of chapter 4, to speak your word with all boldness. All of us, Lord, continuing to speak your word. We hear the threats. We know our leaders are just out of jail. But Lord, help us all to continue to speak your word with boldness. And the result was chapter 4, verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And all, that is, spoke the word of God boldly. So what I want us to see is not only that this was a whole church family project, but that in asking for signs and wonders to be done, they weren't hoping for an approach to engaging the believers of that city that was different from them all telling the gospel. The signs and wonders that they were asking for God to do were not meant to replace the whole church family being engaged in bold evangelism. Rather, it was meant as a vital accompaniment to their bold declaration of the gospel. Why do I say vital? Because... At this point in history, the message of the good news of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus was brand new. It was one of many competing messages. It needed, at that stage in world history, to be authenticated. And so in verse 30 of chapter 4, they had asked that the Lord would do that. That he would authenticate his word. That he would stretch out his hand to heal and signs and wonders would follow. And now notice how, that, how God did that. What did it look like when he stretched out his hand? We've seen it already. Chapter 5, verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. It was the Lord doing these things, but he did it through the apostles. Why is that significant? Why did he not do it through the whole church family if they all needed boldness for their witness? He did it through the apostles because... 
they were those who were uniquely appointed not only for the proclamation of the gospel which is everyone's job who belongs to Christ but uniquely appointed for the formulation of the gospel so these signs and wonders were given to make it clear that these men were God's authorized spokesmen the apostles under the inspiration of the spirit of the risen Lord Jesus were formulating the gospel and then proclaiming the gospel and as the message was understood people obeyed it they came to trust in the Lord Jesus as he did that work in their hearts they came to belong to the early church family and all of them in that early church family enabled by the Holy Spirit then joined the apostles in telling the gospel but their unique role was in the formulating of the gospel and so there was obviously the need for great boldness because this message was and is hugely countercultural, and they needed the Lord to verify that these men were speaking the word of God that their message was his message and this is why the signs and wonders aided their evangelism. Well, it, it begs a question, doesn't it? Should we at Charlotte Chapel, in our prayer meetings, in our house groups, day by day, should we be praying for God to do signs and wonders to help us in our evangelism? And I want to say yes and no, because that will please everybody. Well, that's not the reason I want to say yes and no. No, because on the one hand, we don't need God to do that for the same precise historical reasons as happened in this context. The apostles of the Lord Jesus and their message has been authenticated. So it would be nonsense for us to ask God to re-authenticate us as the people of God speaking the word of God in this generation because he's authenticated his word. Historically, we see that here. So on the one hand, we don't need the same precise we don't have the same precise reasons for authentication. We don't need the Lord to keep re-authenticating his people. We're not formulating the gospel. So we're not in that situation. But surely we ought all to be praying for boldness so that we can all be heralds of the gospel. And that's the thing that I don't think is happening in the UK at large it's happening in places but I don't think it's happening at large and it's the only way the gospel's going to get out if the whole church family is asking the Holy Spirit to give them so you today think about Phil's question to me this time tomorrow boldness that you could say something that you could have a part in this great work of speaking of and for the Lord Jesus. So we ought to be praying for that. And though we cannot demand it, surely we should pray that alongside the whole church family, boldly speaking the good news of Jesus, God would do something amazing. We need him to do something amazing. We need him to break into this spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, completely disinterested, hard-hearted, hard -hearted, broken culture. We need him to break in by his grace and to do things that make it crystal clear as he walks into people's lives that, that just makes it evident that only a God of resurrection power could be at work like that. 
And one of the biggest miracles that God does is when he wakes up whole church families. When we not only pray for our leaders' boldness, but when we pray that we too will be bold in making known the gospel. That's the main thing now as it was then, getting the good news out. And before we leave this little point, let me notice, let me show you that what you can already see that the signs and wonders were not even as convincing as we might imagine they would be. I can remember as a a boy growing up in Hamilton and uh, studying for the Christian Endeavor Bible exam, Elijah in 1 Kings and the great contest of Mount Carmel. And I can remember saying to my dad, Dad, why don't we all go down to Strathclyde Park and get all the churches together and we'll build a huge pyre and we'll get all the non-Christians to come and we'll say, God, do it now. And the fire will fall from heaven and the whole of Strathclyde Park will be licked up. The, the pond will disappear. Along with all the arsenic from Raven's Creek. And it will all go. And then everybody will believe. That's what I thought would happen. And it worked. No, of course it didn't work. Of course it didn't work. And notice here, you know, if you're thinking like that this morning, oh, you know, it's great. You know, we've had a guy telling us that the power is in God's word to change lives. But wouldn't it be great if we saw God really working? But notice what happens when God really works. Even in chapter 5, there is a mixed response. It's good in verse 13. No one else dared join them. Would that be a sign of authenticity in Charlotte Chapel if as a result of your sense of taking God seriously, nobody else dared join you, even though you were highly regarded by the people? That's a fascinating detail. It means that there was such a powerful sense of God being at work among the church that the community found being around the church uncomfortable. Well, we use pews for that nowadays to help people feel uncomfortable. But that's not really the same thing, is it? The ordinary people had such a sense that God was in the midst of his people that they stayed a respectful distance. There was a sense of shock and awe about the church. The church took God seriously and the community began to sense that they ought to do so as well. That's something to pray for. But then there were others who acted viciously against the apostles. Verse 17, the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Now get the point there. Neither the miraculous signs nor the bold preaching produced faith among the Sadducees. And so some rejected the gospel, but many more wonderfully accepted it. Verse 14, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And all is an answer to an earlier prayer, and that should be our prayer too. But let's stay with that little picture just now as we move to our second thing. Number one, an answer to an earlier prayer. Number two, an answer to an earthly power. Notice in passing that even when God is miraculously at work, as he undoubtedly was in Acts 5, it doesn't guarantee an easy time for the church. So the apostles, verse 17, were arrested and put in the public jail. And I want you to notice why. It wasn't the miracles that most upset the opponents of the gospel. 
Verse 27. Later on, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. And here's what he said, verse 28. Look at it for yourself. We gave you strict orders not to do miracles. No, it doesn't say that. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. You see, it was the preaching of the gospel that got them lifted. It wasn't the miracles. And notice earlier what it was that they were freed from prison to do. Verse 19. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go and stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. So verse 21, at daybreak they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. It's pretty clear from this text, isn't it? And this is consistent with all of the Bible that the power to change lives doesn't ultimately come in seeing the miraculous. The miraculous happened to authenticate the word of God and we long for him still to be doing amazing things that we cannot do in people's lives. We preach Christ, God opens blinded eyes. He does that miraculous thing and we long for him to do that in Edinburgh today and throughout our nation and world. As long as we know that the power to change lives comes ultimately from people hearing the good news of Jesus in his word. That this that we have in the word of God is life-giving truth. And so they were brought out from prison to stand in the temple courts and tell the people. And they went and taught them. That's how we know where the power is. Not only because it's what the Lord explicitly commanded, but also because it's what the enemy tried to prevent. Phil read to us, didn't he, about that, what we might call a steward's inquiry the next morning in verses 21 to 23, because they discover that all the doors in the jail are locked as they were left. The lights are on, but nobody's home. And then as they're trying to work out where the apostles have disappeared to, rather embarrassingly, verse 25, someone came in and said, look, the men that you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Can you imagine that moment? Awkward. How amazing. The apostles weren't banged up in prison. They were let loose in the pulpit. Instead of doing time, they were declaring truth. It's one of these terrific, defiant moments. I love it in the Gospels and the story of the Easter where you read of the angel sitting on the stone. I think he was banging his heels against the stone with a big cheesy grin on his face. I can't prove that from the text, but there is a measure of defiance. He sits on the stone that has been rolled away that was meant to seal Jesus' dead body. He sits on it. And you see the same thing here. The men you put in jail. The news is not they've broken free and we don't know where they are. The news is we've bro they've broken free and we know exactly where they are. And we know exactly what they're doing. <laughs> it's fantastic stuff. But do you see that if all that was needed for people to turn to Christ for new life, if all that was needed was powerful, miraculous evidence then surely the high priest and his 
colleagues would be on their knees by this point in chapter 5. Yet no matter how the events of these days were inexplicable apart from the power and presence of the risen Lord, their hearts hardened. Just exactly as what happened in Jesus' ministry with the amazing things that he did. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Verse 28, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And there it is. An archaeological discovery right here in Acts 5. There it is. A first century hostile witness to the core of the gospel message. The apostles have been told to go and tell the people all about this new life. And we now know from this hostile witness in verse 28 that this new life in Jesus must have centered on the nature of the death of Jesus because they said, you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. The news of this new life centers on the news of our Savior's death. We don't have time to unpack this this morning, but I wonder, have you seen the link in your own life between your guilt and Jesus' death and this new life that is proclaimed in the gospel? This man hadn't. He said, you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. He did not see the link between his guilt and Jesus' death and the new life. I wonder, have you seen it? I wonder, have you seen that the story of the new life in Jesus is all about the awesome death of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross and in the tomb and by his resurrection? You see, to some people, that is the best news they have ever heard. When they get these three things lined up and they stop rationalizing their guilt and going to counselors and playing the relativist game that were, I might not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as Jimmy Savile. When we've stopped playing that game, and we actually face our guilt and think about why God the Son shed his blood, amazingly, it's good news. It's good news of new life. I wonder, have you lined that up yet? That's something to talk about later. But now we close. What are we going to do with this earthly power? How are we going to answer this earthly power? There was that day a legal prohibition on the preaching of the gospel. And what will the living church do if that day comes again in our lifetime, as it well may? Well, if we take the Lord seriously, by his grace, in the face of any legal prohibition, we will remember this lasting principle. Have a look at verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. There's the lasting principle. But as quickly as I draw your attention to it, I want to say that this is not an arbitrary statement. This didn't trip from Peter's tongue. He wasn't looking forward to this moment. Those who take the Lord seriously do not easily and do not happily rebel against the statutory authorities because we know that God is sovereign over them and holds them to account whether they're good or rubbish. 
whether we agree with them or not we know that God holds them to account and he tells us to be respectful of them the church of Jesus Christ to take him seriously is to be comprised of the best most considerate respectful law abiding citizens right up until the point of conflict between what the law says and what the Lord says and at that point if there is a legal prohibition we've got to remember the lasting principle we must obey God rather than human beings and notice how Peter explains this principle he explains it this bold statement we must obey God rather than men he explains it on the grounds of who God is and what he has done verse 30 here's why we must obey him the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead whom you killed by hanging him on a cross and God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins and we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him so we will obey him respectfully we cannot obey you you see the point is the apostles stood there that day facing down the authorities which was not an easy thing to do and never is and never ought to be an easy thing to do but they were able to do that not on the basis that they were carrying in their pocket the original get out of jail free card that God had just sprung them through the night and no matter how many times they were put back in they would automatically be sprung miraculously that wasn't the basis of their confidence as they said no sorry we must continue to speak about this new life they, they, they weren't confident on the basis of the Lord's ability to intervene and get them out of jail because in chapter 7 he didn't get Stephen off the hook he doesn't always get his people out of jail no notice that they were willing to obey God they were willing to disobey men not ultimately because God had just freed them from jail but ultimately do you see verse 30 because God had raised Jesus from death that is the foundational point Not we have a God who gets out of sticky situations, but we have a God who raised his son from the death that he died in our place on the cross. That's what emboldens those who take the Lord seriously. We're emboldened because we know that Jesus was not just jailed, he was killed. And we know that when he hung there, there was no angel who came down from heaven to get him off the cross we know that he went to the grave and verse 30 we know that God raised him from death and because of what he accomplished by his death namely verse 31 the power to forgive from sin those who repent and turn to him and in other words the power to be brought into this new life because of that because of that stunning massive universe changing truth neither life nor death nor men nor law 
can have any ultimate consequence over those who are Christ because he is exalted as prince and savior. That's what Paul said of Jesus. And prince there is not the artist formerly known as prince. It's not a kind of, you know, nice thing to say about Jesus. He's like a prince. It means awesome leader and savior. And that awesome leader and savior who'd been on the cross, who'd been in the grave, who'd risen to the power of an endless life, who'd ascended back to the throne of his father in heaven, that awesome leader was leading the apostles that very minute and they were taking his lead. Right there. Prince and Savior. And so when we've got that clear, verse 29, the lasting principle, we must obey God rather than human beings. It's only common sense. Come the day that you and I have to answer to an earthly power, it's only common sense that we don't cave. So I wonder this morning, do you take the Lord seriously? Are you trusting in his death and resurrection and reign to deal with your guilt and bring you forgiveness of sin? Are you happy to have your guilt being responsible for his bloodshed? Are you happy to associate your guilt and his blood? Are you taking him seriously? And as a member of his church, are you asking the Holy Spirit to make you as bold in your witness as you're asking him to make your leaders as bold in their witness? It's not a matter really of personal preference or personality, is it? It's a matter of obedience. Notice verse 32. We're witnesses of these things. You know, the colossal things we're talking about in the gospel of Jesus. We're witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So if you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, and if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the power to witness. You have the source of boldness. But friends, here's where I close. I don't want us just to go away thinking today, well, come the day we'll be ready. Come the day if things shift sufficiently in our country and there is a legal prohibition on the gospel, we'll be ready and we'll suddenly kick in and begin to witness that day. When it gets hard, we'll take our stand. That's fantasy if it's not happening now. There's no way we'll take our stand then if we're not doing it now. And the enemy has organized as much as he can to stop the gospel being told. That's what we see in 5, and we see it all the way through the New Testament. And we also see in 5 that it's not just political power that opposes the gospel and needs to be withstood in my life and yours. We see in 5 that ahead of the day, when it might get difficult for us politically or with human resources in our workplace to stand for Christ, ahead of that day, there are lots of obstacles that are designed to cut the feet from us in proclaiming the gospel right now. For example, what about the powerful love of money? So lethal for Ananias and Sapphira. 
where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What about the powerful appeal of fame? Where do you see that in the passage? Well, just as the love of money was potentially or utterly lethal for Ananias and Sapphira, wasn't it potentially lethal for Peter and his gospel ministry to discover that the crowds wanted his shadow to pass over over them? That is so potentially destructive for leaders. That level of power, that level, level of acclaim, that level of fame, how easy it would have been for Peter to leave the work of the gospel and go and form Shadow of Peter Ministries International. And instead of Billy Graham's signature tune being just as I am with Peter, it would have been me and my shadow. And he had a, the whole crowd singing it. And he would have promised the people at the back, don't worry, when the sun goes down, oh my goodness, my magic shadow is coming to get you and the blessing will be great. And they're all shouting for... Well, it didn't happen, but you can see these people even want to fall under my shadow. Deadly. What about the powerful attraction of a quiet life? It must have represented itself to the apostles when the Lord sprung them from the prison and told them to go back and do what got them nicked in the first place. There must have been these few seconds when they said, this is great, we're free We've done our bit. We've done our time. It's time for others to step up to this now. We're not as fit as we used to be and we've had a beating and all the rest of it and we don't know how much more of this I can take. I think it's time for us just to settle back and have a quieter life. Do you know that that thinking has gutted the gospel in so many churches? The length and breadth of the Western world. Not in Iran but the length and breadth of the Western world. And if you're thinking like that today, well, I've done my bit. I'm really, I'm at the stage now when it's up to others. And I pray and I pay so that others can do this work. If you're like that, then should the day come when it gets difficult to stand for Christ? You won't stand then. Why? Because you're not taking Jesus seriously now. It doesn't magically happen. So there may be these more subtle approaches. The enemy threw then and throws now at the church everything he can to wreck it. He's still trying to derail the church from the gospel and from the joy of being bold in speaking the gospel. He's still trying to get good, solid evangelical churches to believe that the great thing we do is centralized preaching and that is a great thing. But I look at the congregation this morning and I think about the city of Edinburgh. How can, an, how can even such a staff team as you have here and elders and supporters and CE leaders and other ministry leaders, how can even they begin to reach what this room could reach? If we were all on our faces asking the Holy Spirit to give us the boldness that we want him to give those in leadership. Friends, verse 20. Go, 
stand in the temple courts or wherever you can and tell the people all about this new life. Let's pray together.